Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is musician and songwriter Taj Mahal. He's joined in conversation by rock music journalist and broadcaster Ben Fong Torres. And now join Ben Fong Torres at the JCCSF as he introduces Taj Mahal. Well, I'm not going to say much about Taj Mahal because we'll be learning all about him within a few minutes. I just wanted to say that uh, when I was a weekend DJ on KSAN back in the 70s, uh, on my off days from Rolling Stone, uh, Taj Mahal was a favorite, and not only of mine on Sundays, but of all of us on the old Jive 95. We love playing a wide variety of music, uh, a wide range of music on the station, and Taj was a one-man wide range. How wide? Well, no, not that way, but um, here is what the Rolling Stone album guide said about him in 1992. His eclectic, all-embracing approach to the blues fell out of favor for a while, but Taj Mahal is ripe for rediscovery. Though he's an accomplished roots scholar, Taj never comes off as a fussy purist. Amazingly, his musical reach only rarely exceeds his grasp. At various times, Taj has gracefully absorbed folk, rock, reggae, and calypso influences into his down-home Mississippi Delta-bred sound. He began by smoothly updating country blues standards and his own similarly inspired compositions with solid support from guitarist Jesse Ed Davis. If the debut, the album Taj Mahal, is sketchy, the double set giant step The Old Folks at Home presents a telling picture of Taj's multi-instrumental ability and the seductive charm of his relaxed yet resonant vocal style. The old folks at home finds Taj alone on the front porch with his guitar, banjo, harp, and incredible repertoire for company. It's a pleasure tonight to make his company. To begin with, here are some sights and sounds of the great Taj Mahal. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Taj Mahal. 
So welcome to the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. It's amazing to see those uh, posters. You sharing the bill with Creedence Clearwater and a one-point Led Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. Wow, some great Sons shows. of Chaplin. And the Sons of Chaplin, all the great On and on and on and on. Yeah. Let's go back to your beginnings and the beginning of a life uh, as eclectic as any in music. And it begins in Harlem, where you were born Henry St. Clair Fredericks, Jr. Mm. Mm. You were only there a short time, except yeah. commuting back and forth to uh, the place where you really were raised, in Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. And your heritage uh, includes lots of music. Your mom was a gospel singer. I believe. And a school teacher. And a school teacher. Your father was from the West Indies. Yeah. He was a, an arranger, a copyist, and an accomplished and popular piano player in, steeped in jazz. And then beyond that, your godfather, I just learned moments ago backstage, was uh, Buddy Johnson. Tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Buddy Johnson uh, was a really wonderful a musician that lived in the South Carolina, not too far from my mother. And he and my father were sweet on my mom, but mm. my dad won out. <laughs> and they managed to stay friends. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I got to be uh, um, uh, B- Buddy's godson. Mm. And uh, as a youngster, I got to see that band come by our house. And uh, maybe, I think once or twice, once that I really clearly remember. And my mom spending three days cooking for the band, you know, because those guys have been on the road forever, you know. Or, you know, anyway, we can, there's a million stories, but we won't get started there. That'll go all, right. all night. Yeah, around the house, what kind of music was there? Was, it, was, was there all that kind of music that melded into what you became and began to play? Yeah, my, I never remember any time in life not hearing music. There's no point in time that I can say, I didn't hear any music. Well, I might not have heard good music, you know, between 51 and, and, and you know, do-do-do-do-do, you know, whatever. But I remember hearing lots of incredible music and hearing about the musicians because my father was so deep into classic, you know, from the island of St. Kitts and uh, the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean. The Caribbean style is that everybody's going to look at you as a scion of Africa, and you got all that natural rhythm, you know, so therefore it's easy for you to play, you know, so you have to learn, this school you in learning classical music. So then afterwards I played a classical piece of music on the piano. Nobody could say to me, you can't play. <laughs> so then you can play anything you want. You have to please your parents. So that's the way my father, you know, we got to hear all that kind of, we heard classical music, we heard gospel music, my mother was a singer, she was an exceptional woman, who was a college graduate in 1938 from South Carolina State in her early childhood development, and, you know, and had all this incredible gospel music and, and all these great talents, you know, as a cook and as a mother and as a nurturer, and my dad was a hard worker, and he quit the music business, and, and their, their agreement was that he was going to quit going out on the road and doing all that stuff as long as he could have some equipment that allowed him to listen to all the changes that were happening in the music. So whatever the modern equipment was at the time, record player with 33, 16, 45, 78, he had that, and he kept up with the music. So we heard Nat King Cole, we heard Duke Ellington, we heard Ella Fitzgerald, we heard... 
you know, Andy Kirk, we heard Jimmy Lunsford, we heard Louis Jordan, uh, Bull Moose Jackson, uh, you know, Wynoni Harris, you just name them. They all came, plus all the friends who came in from all that time. And be, since our, our family was South Carolina, my mother, my father was from the Caribbean, our music, I'm already gumbo starting it out, you know. You looking gumbo, you want got gumbo, you looking at it, you know. Well, what I try to tell people is that at that time, the culture was so musical. You just walk out in the street and start hearing it, you know. People come by you with instruments, and Sunday you hear music in church, and somebody was playing music here. Music was everywhere, and it wasn't all recorded that you heard that time. Recording, recorded music was this much of live music and was, was like really a, a big thing, a huge thing then as it still is now, but even more so then because so many people weren't recorded. But uh, it was an exciting time. I mean, it's like seven, at seven years old, my favorite song was Body and Soul by Coleman Hawkins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, and and you know, the, funny, the other funny thing is that around the Elvis Presley time, I remember Miss Phelps was a music teacher and she said, well, why, didn't, why doesn't everybody bring some music from home that they could share with the class? So everybody brings in all this stuff, and most of it was music that they heard from the radio or out of the, the popular media. What if I come in? Harry James and Flight of the Bumblebee. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine everybody in the class talking about, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> wow. Because, you know, it's like, can't you hear it? <laughs> Listen to it that way. Glad I hear this. Wait till he gets to this part. <laughs> so you heard a wide, wide world of music, but for a lot of kids, you know, there's that peer pressure of going with whatever is popular, what's on the radio, what's on uh, the, 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 the what the DJs are playing. But you really loved what was around you in your yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't don't think I didn't venture out there. Duke, 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 Duke over Duke. <laughs> I was skating, I was bopping, I was... Yeah, you did all I that. Was, I was doing all that, too, but that was sort of like, it went down here when I wanted to really hear some music and kick back. You know, then you throw on a Ma Jamal, you know, and, yeah. and uh, you know, you know, I mean, you know, live at the Pershing Lounge. One mm-hmm. thirty in the afternoon, I would start jonesing. And then I'm going to get out of class, and I can go and drop the needle on points down. Ding, ding, ding. You know, I mean... You, you know. were, uh, as a kid, you were also beyond all the music coming into the house already, from visitors to your dad's work and your mm-hmm. mom singing. Uh, there was the radio. Mm-hmm. You were a radio junkie, weren't you? Oh, way, way radio junkie. You know, a radio kid. My parents wouldn't let me play the radio, their radio, late at night. So I built myself a crystal radio set, which took no electricity and had a set of earphones. So I could, like, at night, I put the earphones on my pillow, see? Listen to all the blues coming up, you know, late at night. That was when the blues came on. Because the radio stations had so much critical mass during the daytime. And then they went off the air. You know, and so it wasn't until I came to California that I ever heard a 24-hour, um, you know, R&B station. Mm-hmm. R&B for 24 hours? What? You know, yeah. do you love me? You know? <laughs> but... <laughs> At nighttime, though, where you were uh, back east, you could pull in the southern station, yeah. the legendary John R. John out of R. Nashville, and you talked about a guy up in Buffalo. Yeah, that was um, uh, everybody knows Wolfman Jack, right? Okay. Well, before Wolfman Jack was the Hound George Hound Dog Lorenz, 
and he used to come around about the midnight, you know, and he had this, it took me like 50 years to find out what the theme song was for this thing because I just couldn't find it, you know. And um, Cozy Eggleston playing uh, Big Heavy. Uh, Cozy Eggleston was a tenor saxophone player from Chicago. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I never heard of him before other than on that show. Um, but the Hound played all these great blues records. I mean, he was playing like Muddy Waters and Slim Harpo and all that. And like, so, you know, as a little a kid, you know, you're like hearing some real music. You know, it sounds like bacon cooking on the grill, you know, the grill right there. Some, there must be some grits nearby. I know this guy. I know they got collard greens and cornbread up in there. Some sweet potato pie. You can hear that. And, and the gumbo ain't far away. Well, and it just was so, it was so, such, so exciting as a young kid to, to be, to have your mind and not be distracted by the eye. I mean, it was like the eye was not happening for me. The neutral place in the eye was, I mean, it was like my eye was in my ear, you know. One of the people in our audience tonight uh, was a disc jockey in Buffalo. His name is Tommy Saunders. You remember him from KYA and, and Coit. He came out of Buffalo, and he himself was a fan of the Hound and would go to the nightclub where he performed. Yeah, the Zanzibar Lawrence, yeah. Stand up, man, so you can be counted. Come on now. <laughs> Give this man a hand. This is real, this is real radio here. Right. All right. Did you I'm have a, get your number. <laughs> but, Taj, did you have a chance to meet some favorite disc jockeys and then discover to, to uh, your surprise that they were white? Oh, uh, No. I never, no, no, I, no, I, I had a suspicion because I knew about Freeman Gosden and Charles Correll on the Amos and Andy show. Oh, uh, hello there, Andy, or uh, I want to see what you got on the way. Wait, wait a minute, who are these guys? Freeman Gosden and Charles Correll. Then I saw a picture, and I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> no, no, I, you know, this, was, this, was a, this was something that a lot of people knew, and they, mm-hmm. they talked about it. I mean, hey, the music got played, and that was what was the most important thing. Yeah. And yeah. their attitude and yeah. their support. Of yeah, the they music. supported the music wholeheartedly, supported the artists. Artists came on. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that wouldn't have happened without those, without those, those players in place. Yeah. Your interest in music was furthered a couple of years later by your stepfather, who helped yeah. you get your uh, first guitar. Yeah. And you, took, you took lessons from a, uh, a Linwood Perry, who yeah. turned out to be, as it turned out, was a nephew of one Arthur Big Boy Crudup. Yeah, 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 yeah. Another that... major figure <laughs> in the history of rock and roll. Yeah. Wrote, That's All Right, Mama. Yeah. yeah. First performer of that yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in high school, you got involved, you got involved in, um, among other music, doo-wop. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was real popular. What'd you have? Uh, quintet, quartet? Um, we had, well, different, different times, uh, trios. You know, quartets, quintets. A lot of the, the one of the popular ways, which which came out of the gospel groups, which was a guitar player or a piano player, and then three to four singers. You know, and then and but the guitar, the guitar. You know, with, with that guitar player singing a particular part, and everybody else, you know, out front with a front singer out in front of that. Myself and my brother Seabreeze was involved in that too. He had a really, he had a really good group called the Monte Clovers. And they used to sing with us when we had, you know, when I needed a backup, when I needed backups for my, for my group, their lecturers, well, then they would come out and, and add one more guitar to the band and, and great backups were the stuff that we were doing. And you sang what? The classic doo-wop songs we know? And it's still in the night. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, a little bitty pretty one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
baby, old baby by the shells. Um, um, could this be magic by the dubs? Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, the wind by the Diablos, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you know. And then it started stretching out to like, you know, the Falcons and your soul fine, you know, which yeah. is Wilson Pickett Bridge, at least sure. leads on that kind of stuff. Like, but, but the really old doo-wop stuff, you know. In fact, you know what, what story, quick. I'm on the blues cruise, and they tell me that Dion DeMucci is going to be on the blues cruise, mm-hmm. right? So I can't wait to see this guy because I'm going to hit him with something. You know, dun 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 de dun 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 de dun 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 de dun dun de dun big love you like I do dun 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 de ball. So I said, he says, yeah, yeah. You know how we got that sound? We used to go up to Harlem and go listen. We used to go to the to the to the what do you call the Apollo Theater and listen to the saxophone players, and they were playing the afternoon, and so that's how we got that sound, like a saxophone player. And he'd go like, oh, yeah, okay. He's a cool guy, really cool guy. We had some just great conversations. Right. Well, they were very deep into doo-wop, too. The Belmonts were a doo-wop group. Yeah, right. exactly. The Belmonts. And also, though, while you were doing doo-wop and and that kind of music, you were also steeped in love with the blues. Yeah. A wide variety of musicians were inspirations. Can you name one or two? Well, for dancing, straight away, Jimmy Reed. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jimmy Reed was just like, you got girls that knew how to dance to Jimmy Reed. You'd find them every time they hear you hit, you know. You know, all those girls, they had a kind of lope to the way that they danced, you know. And they wore long skirts, and they used to dance. And, and I mean, the Southern girls, that was what was happening. See, our town was like the crossroads for the Caribbean, the South, you know. I mean, it was like, you know... Um, Poland, Russia, blah, 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 blah. Everybody was in town. It was like Mrs. O'Gilvy, Mrs. McGinty. You know, it was like the Johnsons, the Browns, the, you, know, the, you know, the Hurricane, whoever it was. They was all there, and it was all mixing up in this pot with the music, you know. And Jimmy Reed was hugely popular, you know, for blues. Um, uh, another guy I used to like to dance to was uh, Buster Brown. Mm-hmm. Fannie Mae, Buster yeah. Brown, uh, and of course, you know, Fast Domino ain't nothing but some New Orleans mm-hmm. oh, jived up blues and a little yeah. boom, dum 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 I like the wheel walk. You know, I mean, it's like, the, the music was so so phenomenal at that time. I mean, just a kid, as a kid, I mean, you know, here I am, stovepipe pants and white bucks, you know, flat top, like, cut off like Grace Jones, you know. <laughs> I'm serious. That's why I like Grace Jones. I mean, she got the, she had my haircut. <laughs> I love Grace. Would that be the kind of music you would hear when you went out to clubs like the um, Club 47? No. Well, by the time I got to Club 47, the music itself, popular music itself, has, in my estimation, had just completely withdrawn into some kind of... Uh, I mean, place that I didn't particularly like musically, and I was looking for something that was a little, that was a lot more real. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Club Forty Seven presented like you know artists based upon the the quality of their music. Like who? Um, Jesse Fuller. Uh huh. Um, nice. let's see, Mississippi John Hurt, mm. Booker White, Sunhouse. Yeah. Um, 
You know, those kind of guys play. A lot of them echoed in your music later on. Mm. Oh, yeah. Career. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love those people. You're listening to musician and songwriter Taj Mahal. He's joined in conversation by rock music journalist and broadcaster Ben Fong Torres. Anpina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. For a while, it wasn't going to be music as your career. You gave a lot of thought and a lot of time and a lot of effort in school and elsewhere to farming. Yeah, well, the, the, you know I mean? To a lot of people, it doesn't say, given that, I had a really good history of my own history through my, my parents, grandparents, and, you know, about where I came from and where I descended from in the world, from Africa into the new world and what, you know, what was expected of me here, this, that, and the other thing. I realized that I arrived with a couple of really good, you know, strokes and you know, a couple of good swords in my hand. One was agriculture and the knowledge of all of that. And, you know, and the ability to do that and, and music, you know, also, you know, architecture and art and other things like that, which were not secondary, but they were a part of that. So my thought was there was two things that people would not be able to do without out in the future. Mm-hmm. And that was music and food and probably another way of food and music. There's no way they're going to get around <laughs> that. So however it is, what, whichever one becomes popular or it becomes the one that I'm going to make a living at. Well, all right, that's the one I'm going to follow. And then as far as the other one's concerned, I can always have a garden. I don't need to have a farm. (laughs) Was it around this time going into uh, college um, Mm. that you adopted um, a stage name? It was so hip in the 70s when I heard about Taj, or at least 60s, that I, for a short time, adopted the name Stonehenge. (laughs) (laughs) But you were the... (laughs) Hey... It worked for a while. It's a good DJ name. Yeah, good name. But you were Taj Mahal. How did that come to you? Starts probably like in the late 40s with uh, the, the ability to see uh, a certain little um, East Indian man wrapped in a, in, a, in a cloth with little round glasses named Mahatma Gandhi completely put the British Empire at bay. And I was like, okay. I can check this guy out. Mm-hmm. And he just seemed like one of the, the great people of the world. Because, you know, kids looking out to see, well, who's out there that's real people and can really do stuff, you know, can really move stuff, you know. And Gandhi was clear that he was like, you know, the power of the mind and be positive. And that kind of led me to, you know, paying more attention. I think also, too, that because of the education being a focus in our family, that um, we had both the Cyclopedia Britannica and, and World Book Cyclopedia. So anytime there was a law in the house that I couldn't figure out, you know, grab a volume of the encyclopedia and lay on the floor and flip through the pages, you know, and stay out of mom's way. Wow. <laughs> Don't be a nuisance. <laughs> Can you imagine kids doing that today? Hey, 
sorry for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, wow. I mean, you know, that's what the, well, that's that's what we have to offer them. We have to convince, not so much convince them, but create a, a situation where they recognize that the older we get, we got something to offer them. Because a lot of times it's like, well, they're they're you know they're only thirty, so we don't have anything to say to them, you know, <laughs> which is what they were saying back in the sixties, and now they're sixty. Hello. <laughs> so you chose music and you formed a couple of uh, um, bands. One was called Taj Mahal and the Electras. Yeah. And then you had a duo with an, uh, an artist named Jesse Lee, Lee Kincaid. Yeah. And then you decided to make the big move from the East Coast to the West. Yeah. To Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. What was the reason, the most compelling reason for that? Well, the East Coast is kind of like, you know, it's the first place that... Uh, America starts to grow, and it grows in measurement very much like uh, its parent, England. Very tight, very close, very clipped. And uh, they don't, if you got a new idea around here, <laughs> you might be in trouble. <laughs> you know, so I figured I'd go out to California where, you know, it's like brand new out there. I didn't realize it's like, LA was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, hey. Yeah, man, it's really cool, you know. <laughs> Did you know anybody in uh, uh, L.A. or Santa Monica? The only Monica? person I knew was Jesse Lee Kincaid that I came out, and I heard about this guy named uh, Ry Cooter. And, and uh, when I met him, I was like, this is the baddest in the world right here. This boy can play. Mm-hmm. You know, because everybody else said they can play. Ah, this guy, you go there and you sit there, and you two hours later, you haven't heard eight bars of music. This cat walks in the room, and you know it's going to happen. You know, and he was just an incredible musician, and and I still to this day, he was. I mean, at that time, as much as I was playing, I was probably a lot better singer than a lot of people. But he was leagues ahead as far as a player. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an incredible player. Just, wow. you know, we all know that by now. Yeah. You know. oh, you're a fantastic singer, and uh, the uh, first group you formed there in uh, L.A. was the Rising Suns, mm-hmm. and you wound up, uh, you have to tell us, too, how you got a record contract uh, uh, with Columbia, a major, major label, and then you, you know, let's talk, talk about that first. How was it that a new band in Los Angeles gets a contract with Columbia? Well, I think we were causing a lot of trouble up and down Sunset Strip. Ah, you know, and then we were playing all these different places, and we we were we, were, we could draw a crowd, and people were excited about us, and you know, a young, good-looking group, and you know, who knows which way that was going. I mean, some people say, well, you know, in those days they just bought up ten groups, and you know, took them into the studio, and then got the single out and threw it against the wall, and whatever stuck, you know, and then they put the money behind that, and the rest of them. You know, I hope that you can make it, but, uh, you know, sorry, Charlie, but it's Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> so you're talking about playing those clubs that we all heard about, like the Trip and mm. uh, the Whiskey. Mm. You were there uh, at the prime of the Whiskey, post-Johnny Rivers? Yeah, uh, post-Johnny uh, Rivers, yeah. And what kind of bands would you be playing with or opening for or backing up or whatever? Uh, backing up. At that time, we, we well, the Trip, we were lucky. The first gig, one of the first gigs we got at the trip was opening for The Temptations. You imagine when they were like at the Blue Album with all the great songs out of My Girl, blah, 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 blah. And, and Eddie Kendricks had just busted out into the kind of songs that he was singing, you know. And uh, Paul Williams was, excuse me, was, was singing different songs, but it was, it was mostly David Ruffin who was like the, the voice of the group at the time. And to watch them play every night was like, 
one of the most amazing things and see the whole Motown machine work with, you know, um, um, Lamont Dozier and those guys coming in, you know, and, and firing guys because they couldn't play and blah, blah. I mean, just all kinds of stuff that you never saw before, you know, come in there, trombone player, can you read that chart? Yeah, man, I got it. Let's just play it one more time. Can you read the chart? Oh, yeah, man, I got it. Let's just, just let's go through it one more time. Out. Get the next cat. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> Glad I don't have a band like that. But then when the night came and the show came, you saw what the value of that was because everybody was on time. And the musicianship of the traveling bands, it was like, um, it was Norman Roberts was one of the most amazing drummers I ever saw in my life. Just beautiful. Sat his drums differently instead of down in the drums like, you know, this way he sat up over the drums and just had all kinds of beautiful hand tricks and he was the first guy I ever saw take the drumstick and go and the song went and he grabbed the stick and go boom he was like oh my god how do you cut that thing like that you know and then then it was uh, um, Bill Bill Upchurch on bass and Cornelius Grant on guitar and then they would get the rest of the horns and the piano and then they would have the band and the Temptations were fabulous. Yeah. I mean, fabulous, man. We couldn't wait to get off the stage to, you know, to hear them. Of course, the audience didn't know who we were and what we were doing. You know, what kind of stuff is this? They knew the Temptations, but they didn't know no Rising Suns. So, you know, we play, and you somebody would be like, <laughs> you know, and everybody would look at them, what are you clapping for them for? We beating on the Temptations. Oh. But as you say, you made some noise. Mm-hmm, you got mm-hmm, seen mm-hmm. by the right people, ultimately. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you exactly. also had a chance to meet, uh, maybe even, work, I don't know, you certainly shared the room with one of the all-time greats, Otis Redding. Yeah, uh, that, was, that, was, that, that was significant for me. Otis was happening with uh, um, uh, Mr. Pitiful on the East Coast, and when I came out to the West Coast, Otis was out on the West Coast. It was something I recognized, and him and... Um, Rescue me, Fontella Bass. Oh. And then we got to play for, we got to open for Otis for like a week at the Whiskey of Go-Go. Oh. Two shows a night. This was the most amazing show I have ever seen in my life. When you, know, you can hear everything on records, but a live show, this guy just would come in and tear a room up. You know what I mean? It's like you, there was nothing left at the end of the night. You just wanted to just come back again the next night and hear it again, you know. And then we got to be there every night of the recording of Otis Live at the Whiskey and then Otis Live on Sunset Strip. And mm-hmm. that was just fabulous. Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's was somebody that if I have any, if there's any passage in a song and I can do anything that helps bring that spirit back into the music, I will do what I can to bring him back in. You made a record with the Rising Suns. You, pro- you, you produced a single, for sure, for Columbia. No album ever came out, but you moved on fairly quickly from there to your own solo career. <clears throat> and uh, the, the first album, the first series of albums were, were just stunning. These are the ones that we discovered on KSAN, and I'm sure many, many stations around the, uh, the country. The producer of those albums is in the audience tonight, David Rubinson. David, where are you? Please stand up, David. There he is. Yeah, seriously. 
this is my brother in arms, you know. I mean, the story, the story is really funny, you know. I'm on the label with the Rising Suns. You know, the group is about to go bust. Nothing is happening. We can't get this thing off the ground. They don't know what we're doing. You know, it's like, well, is it is it this or is it that, you know. You know, should I stay or should I go, you know. <laughs> That's where they're at, you know. And so I, 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 I get this hot idea that I need to call the president of the record company and tell him that I'm on his label and I've got some ideas, you know, and I do. I literally call up Clive Davis and talk to his secretary, and she says, well, Mr. Davis isn't in right now, but I'll take a message. And, you know, I said, okay, he may, he may not call. I'm sure it was like I called, must have been like, oh, 11 o'clock in the morning. About 4 o'clock that afternoon, the phone rings and said, hi, you know, this is uh, Columbia Records, and uh, I have Mr. Davis on the line for you. Bang, we talked. And he said, I, you know, I said, um, you know, I'd like to really, uh, I've got some idea. I'm on your label. I'm signed to you. I have some ideas. I want to make some records, and, you know, and I'd like to produce myself. And he went like, click, first Eh, wrong answer. <laughs> he says. He says. Uh, uh, he says. Well, I, that's not our policy to have. He said. Well, he said. Would you? Would you? Would you be willing to listen? You hear some? Say, I'll send out some producers. You know. And I said, okay. Uh, and David was the first person that came out, and I went like, okay, <laughs> we can work. And he just, you know, he worked. He, it's sort of like it's better than. But similar to Jay Z and Damon Dash, he did the business. He did the business with the record company, and I did the business with the music. And he never got in my way and allowed me to do exactly what I felt. So what you got was what I felt at that time. You know, totally, totally, totally. You know, and occasionally he came in and said, "Twig, here, well, let's try this. Let's double this piano up over here and listen to what it's going to sound like when it goes on six days on the road." Or this, we put a piano. You know, top down, and we'll walk on it and make. Good morning, little school girl. Young piano plays it. They had a lot of different ideas like that, but never got in the way of the music. And it was always, you know, and so, again, my brother in arms, David Rubinson. Great producer. Yep. Um, now you're. Great taste, great eclecticism, um, knowledge of engineering, clean production. You began to hum, Good Morning, Little Schoolgirl. Mm. Would you uh, favor us with perhaps a tune? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I will. Thank you. Oh, let me see. They can get the, get the, there we go. Okay. Two by 
time turned that water ooh into wine. When the people he changed his time, said me, what kind of man? What kind of man? What kind of man? Now Jesus says. For my baby left me by the San Francisco Bay. I said, Ocean Liner, darling, took her so far away. Didn't mean to treat her so bad. She's the best love I ever did have. Said goodbye, made me cry. I'm about to lay down and die. I said, I ain't got a nickel and I ain't got a lousy dime. If a baby don't give me my name, I'm gonna lose my mind. If she ever come back to stay Gonna be another brand new day Walking with my baby down by the San Francisco Bay Well, meanwhile in another city Just about to go insane Thought I heard my baby call me Baby used to call my name I think I'm gonna take a freight train Right to the end of the line Well, told my baby I'm looking about you And you know you're feeling fine well, I ain't got a nickel and I ain't got a lousy time. Baby, don't come back. I believe I'm gonna lose my mind. Oh, if she ever come back to stay, 
Gonna be another brand new day. Oh, welcome in my baby down by the San Francisco Bay. <laughs> This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who have spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is musician and songwriter Taj Mahal. He's joined in conversation by rock music journalist and broadcaster Ben Fong Torres. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. Wow, nice. Nice Fun. set of music there. That Fun first song. song you did was Ananias. Yes. You uh, performed uh, when you received your... You are now really actually Dr. Mahal, aren't you? Doctor, doctor, doctor. Dr. Mahal. <laughs> he uh, got an it's honorary like doctor, degree. Doctor, uh, doctor. <laughs> I'm teasing. Give me the news. Yeah, right. Uh, at Walford College in Spartansburg, South Carolina. That's right. Yeah. And you sang... Um, you sang Fish and Blues and Creole Bell and Ananias. And you told the students there about opportunity. Yes. Right, about back in, going back to like 64, finding that fork in the road, deciding which way to go, and you chose music. Yeah. I want to ask you if there's anything you can say, uh, something that you regret not having done in your life. I regret not taking a tape recorder and sitting with my mother and getting all of her recipes. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're, we're, you know, know, the good part of it, there there is a good side of this cloud, is that all the males in our family can cook. I mean, I can cook. My my brother Samuel can cook. My brother Seabreeze can cook. My brother Winston can cook. My sisters could cook. Everybody could cook because it was like one of them things, you know, mom was like home all the time for a long time. Then she started, you know, back at her own career. So everybody had to learn stuff. And so, you know, cooking, not an issue, you know, but there's some things like, I'm, it's like, it's like that old, that real good old time fruitcake that you like, not the one you don't <laughs> like, not the one you get every year and go like, <laughs> you know, make prune face when you get it. <laughs> Thank you. I want it so much. <laughs> This is the, yeah, so say this is the one you really like to eat, you know, it's like incredible. And um uh but it's just certain kinds of things that she made and some of them, you know, it's, it was all here, it's just like the music, you know, you gotta at some point sit down and say, Okay, longhand, I put the baking powder in first and then I you know, and I never did that. And that was something I wished I had done. Going back to music, though, to those first albums, you came into the studio with such a wide array of music in your head, and I imagine Mr. Rubinson also had a few ideas. Yeah. I wonder how you did choosing of songs, because you did come up with such an amazing variety of tunes. Well, the, Including the, the, one done by the Monkees. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, her, well, yeah, that was Giant Step. Yeah, take a giant yeah. step. Yeah, I mean, we, it, it went through a lot of different things because Columbia didn't really know what to do with us. I won't get into the, 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 the you know, the, the, the lineage of all of that, but 
when it came time for me to do stuff, what had happened is I had been listening to a lot of the blues players at the time. They were getting a lot of credibility for supposedly playing blues. Now, I danced to it. I breathed to it. I danced with the girls to it. And what they was playing was not no blues. But I knew that what was going to happen, just like other things, is that a lot of people were going to imprint on that and think that that's what it was. And certainly they did. But <clears throat> I was real argumentative about it. And I remember my wife at the time saying to me, if you're going to complain about it, what what good is that? You know, if you have an idea of what you want to do, then you do something about it. And I was like, well, by the time it gets out there, they'll already, and then they said, there's nothing you can do about that. Here's what you got something to do about it. Then it started dawning me, you're right. So I just, just came out with the blues of the tunes that I liked and the music that I liked. I just hit it from that point. The first album was like, you know, kind of wide open in terms of, you know, the different type of songs that were on it, but... I was really, if you can see, I think of three, three of the songs on the, on the album were Sleepy John Estes songs. I love that John Estes. And my idea was as the young blues guy of that particular generation, what I was supposed to do was take the older information and translate it into a modern-day format. So, you know, you had a little bit of, of uh, Memphis, you know, uh, Stax, and to a little bit of Chicago and come up with the mixture. You know, and put a little rock edge to it, you know, and those guys, because that's what they could do. And, the, and those guys that play with me, Jesse Ed Davis was a Kiowa Comanche Indian from Oklahoma. Um, uh, Chuck Blackwell was had English roots uh, from Oklahoma, you know, and then and, and Gary Gilmore. Same thing, English roots from Oklahoma, but these boys could play. They weren't, they weren't about singing. They didn't care about singing. They cared about playing in the groove. And that was what I loved about them. They got all the people that they liked musically. I liked all their people. And I got introduced to some new people as a result. But, you know, I could sing and I had a lot of songs. And we'd sit down and, and I'd play the song. And then, we, and then Jesse would take his guitar pick and put the Telecaster between his, his, his you know, told the Telecaster like this and look down at the floor. And for a long bunch of time, he'd stare and it'd be like, we'd sit in there waiting for Buddha to come back. And he'd come back in and say, all right, Gilmore, you play this. And Chuck, you play that and put a stinger on the end of it like this, you know. And he goes, down, 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 The river was whiskey, and I was a dive, man. I was like, oh, I was in heaven. You know, it's like, here's the groove that I can go down. The road, and, he, and even on that, if you listen back at it, when it comes, I'm going to dive on the bottom. I, 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 I grab a little piece from David Robin. Whoo, I dive on the bottom, just like he sings in some of them songs that he sings in it. Mm. You know, and it was so much fun to play with them because they were like wide open. They were like not close off to the music. They really wanted to play. So by the second album, I kind of got my concept together even that much better. And that was when I came with um, Mailbox Blues. And I had the bass line in my head, and I walked, they used to walk that bass line, and it started out when I was probably about seven or eight years old. I was sitting, it was a Sunday afternoon, it was so hot, like in August, and it was so hot that the tar was melting in the street, you know? Mm. And then what we used to do is find the old popsicle sticks in there, and then stick them in the tar and see how far you could get the tar to go <laughs> Before it let loose and went back down, and you have to go back. You know, kids, what are they going? What do we know, right? <laughs> but down the street comes this woman in spectator pumps. You know what I'm saying? And a polka dot, uh, blue, a blue, 
uh, royal blue and white polka dot dress, you know, and a hat and a big purse. And she was like rolling it down the street. And I remember saying to myself, I said, why help make music? I'm going to make music to the beat that that woman is walking. And that's what Mail, that's all Mailbox Blues is about. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Go back and listen. You hear the music and it's, just, it's exactly like somebody walking. And so I remember, I, I didn't even have a tape recorder at that time. I borrowed this guy named Ronnie Godwin's tape recorder to sing the bass line so I wouldn't forget the bass line. And I can remember everything else, but that bass line, it was particular. And then I taught that to those guys, and then they went just right by, right by my direction, and everything's on there just exactly the way it is. And the recording's great because it's like an eight-track recording. Mm -hmm. It's just like everybody's where they're supposed to be, you know. Yeah. It's fantastic. You made a, a number of great albums for Columbia. You moved over to Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh, did a few there. And then things slowed down a bit, but you didn't. You, uh, you moved right over to Hawaii. Yeah. Formed uh, a band called the Hula Blues Band. Oh, yeah, later on. Yeah. And you have great memories of Hawaii, including things like Anna Banana. Oh, yeah. Let's see. Elizabeth Cotton was like, you know, I mean, to me, she was like the top of the world. Because in the 50s, there was a big, there was the skiffle bands in England were coming up with all this kind of American tunes. And I think probably it had a lot to do with. Uh, well, maybe something to do with um, Alan Lomax being over there and being involved. And, but they were also excited about American traditional jazz and, and traditional music. And so the skiffle bands were over there. And one night, again, listening late night at radio, I hear this song called Freight Train by a woman named Nancy Whiskey. And, I, and, I, and the, the tune mesmerizes me. Okay, and at the end of the tune, they say, and that's Nancy Whiskey with Freight Train. I said, that ain't no English song. <laughs> Took me 25 years to find out who it was, you know, and then, then I found out it was Elizabeth Cotton's song. And I finally got to meet Elizabeth and be, befriend her, and a wonderful woman. And somewhere around her 93rd and 94th birthday, I invited her and her granddaughter over to Hawaii because people in Hawaii revere their elders. You know, the median age over there in Hawaii is 88 years. Wow. Okay, so that means that people are really helping you get there, you know, live longer. And so it's not uncommon for women to play guitar, sing, play bass, play ukulele, piano, whatever. So bringing such a great tutu, you know, uh, over to, uh, to uh, Hawaii to play was just really fabulous. And uh, then she had her birthday while she was over there at Anna Bananas. And it was just, it was really nice. But there was one point when we were out playing shows, she had so many lays on, they were like up to here. She could just barely see her guitar with the play. Wow. But uh, people just loved her. And you know, I mean, you see people sitting on the floor like just engrossed in the locals. Most you know, locals really knew. They knew what time it was. And everybody else too, they just really enjoyed her. Or being there. That's the kind of things I like to do, you know, bring that kind of thing back. But the Hawaiians, you know, they had, they've come through a lot of different kinds of music and they talk about, yeah, get the kind blues over here, you know. They, they really go there. They know what the blues is. They know what feeling is. They're about feeling and that's what really is exciting. They transmit that and what they're doing to take time to play mm -hmm. the music that they play. In more recent years, uh, you have also earned some Grammy Awards. Um, in 1997, you won Best Contemporary Blues Album for Senor Blues. Mm. 
and in 2000 for Shouting in Key. Uh, are awards important to you, or do you think, eh? Well, they're, they're, what, they, what they do is they let me know that people are paying attention mm-hmm. and that the industry and my peers are checking in on me and see what's happening. Yeah. It started somewhere around 73 when we, I did the soundtrack for Sounder and, and then, you know, different things. I started getting nominated for this, yeah. that, and the other thing, over, but it didn't start winning until the late 90s. Oh, some of Todd's most beautiful music is instrumental. Uh, bacon Fat. No. Oh, God. That, find that one. <laughs> Which is easy to do now online. Yeah. Yeah. All oh, your yeah. songs are there. It's yeah. fantastic. And then uh, in, Sen- in Senor Blues, you did a wonderful version of What Am I Living For? Oh, yeah. Uh, in uh, Phantom Blues in 1996, you took on Jesse Hill and oh, o- yeah. Pooh Padu. Oh, yeah. Along with um, I Need Your Lovin' by mm-hmm. Don, Ford, uh, Don D- Gardner. D.D. D- D- Ford. Ford, that's yeah, correct. D.D. Ford, Don yeah. Gardner. You've also paid your tribute to Otis Redding by doing your own version, a lovely one of Mr. Pitiful. Yes. Any more songs you might like to favor the audience with? Uh, maybe, maybe a little banjo music. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. You know, as soon as you hear them do that, you go, oh, that sounds like the blues, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, they'd be right in there. But, there's a tune called uh, Roscoe's Mule. Been here and gone with the 
candy man been here and gone Mr. Candy man been here and gone Wish I was down in New Orleans, baby, sitting on the candy stand Run, get your picture, get your baby some beer Picture, get your baby some beer Get the picture, get your baby some beer 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 now I wish I was down New Orleans, baby, sitting on the candy stand Thank you. On behalf of Taj Mahal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was musician and songwriter Taj Mahal. He was joined in conversation by rock music journalist and broadcaster Ben Fong Torres. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Rashanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. Thanks for listening.